Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in chapter four of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. I'm walking you guys through each Sunday, chapter by chapter in this book, and we're starting to get into the heart of this book, starting with last week where I shared enlightenment, what is enlightenment, chapter three. Now we're moving into chapter four, which is the Four Noble Truths, Establishing Right View. This is where you're going to learn the problem in the unenlightened mind, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. This is the very first discourse of the Buddha after he attained enlightenment, sharing with his students the understanding of what's leading to the discontentedness in the mind and how to actually solve it. So in four simple statements, you're going to understand why you experience things like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. And then with that understanding of why you're experiencing these feelings, then you can actually eliminate them from the mind so that you can get liberated from these strong feelings and experience peace and joy of the enlightened mind. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly. As we go in our class today, there'll be opportunities for you to ask questions. If you're in the live stream, either on Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put your questions into the comment section. We have moderators who are looking at that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'd like to share with you guys a bit about these Four Noble Truths and kind of setting up for you how one would approach the Four Noble Truths because this is really the beginning of the path to enlightenment. When somebody's choosing to start the path to enlightenment and when Gautama Buddha had the very first five students, this is where he started them is with understanding the Four Noble Truths and right view, establishing this right view, because you wouldn't be able to understand anything else on the path to enlightenment if you didn't understand right view and establishing that squarely in the mind. So he started people with right view, and this is where I will typically start a brand new student as well as understanding the Four Noble Truths. The teachings of the Buddha aren't to be believed. You should never believe anything related to the teachings of the Buddha. The teachings of the Buddha are meant to be learned, then you reflect on those to independently verify them, and then you practice them and see the results for yourself that it's improving the condition of the mind. This enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you can see as you're gradually working towards it that the discontentedness is gradually diminishing over time, and eventually you get to the point where it's been one year, two years, three years, you haven't experienced any discontentedness whatsoever, and you'll know that the mind is actually enlightened. And this 
doesn't happen through belief. It happens through learning, through independently verifying those teachings in your reflections, and then practicing to train the mind. It's not believe, 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 and hope something good happens by the time that you die. Instead, it's learn now, reflect now to independently verify the teachings, practice now, and then you see the results now. And this is how you know that you're on the right path with the teachings of the Buddha getting closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. So you do this through acquiring wisdom. Arising wisdom in the mind is what will help you to understand these various aspects of the path to enlightenment. And with the Four Noble Truths, you have this opportunity to have this breakthrough. Even the Buddha calls it this, and it's so appropriate to call it this, where you can have this breakthrough to understanding why your mind experiences what it experiences, and there you can actually resolve the problems in the unenlightened mind. If you didn't have this breakthrough and understanding and establishing right view, then you wouldn't be able to really address the issues in the mind. You'll keep experiencing anger and frustration and irritation over and over and over again. So by learning and deeply understanding the Four Noble Truths and the connected teachings, you can have this breakthrough where you gain this wisdom of what's causing these discontent feelings and then how to actually eliminate them. This is what's called understanding or learning the natural laws of existence. This is what the Buddha taught, is the natural laws of existence. He's explaining to you what is actually transpiring in the mind and what it transpires in the world so that you can then make wiser and wiser decisions. Because as long as the mind is unwise, then it's gonna make unwise decisions and it's going to experience these unwholesome results. But when you accumulate wisdom through not believing teachings, but independently verifying them and practicing them, then you have wisdom to be able to make wise decisions to experience wholesome results. And we've been doing this all throughout our life. It's not just with the Buddhist teachings that you should do this with, but instead we've been doing it all through our life. Because even with something like the natural law of gravity, at one point we didn't understand this natural law. We made unwise decisions. We knocked over glasses, we broke our toys, we fell down and hit our knees and our elbows and our head. We didn't tie our shoes as a child. And we had all these difficulties with the natural law of gravity because we did not understand what we did not understand. We lacked wisdom. We made unwise decisions that led to unwholesome results. But then slowly but surely, we learned about this natural law of gravity. And as we did, we started making wiser decisions. We started tying our shoes tighter, making sure they were nice and tight. We started looking at the surface of the sidewalk when we walked outside. We would maybe kind of got our balance to walk and then you know, kind of run and hop and jump. We learned how to ride our bicycle. And we're at the point now where we could travel all over the world. We can climb up on ladders, we can go on airplanes because we deeply understand this natural law of gravity so we make wiser choices and we no longer have the struggles and complications that we once had based on our lack of wisdom. So the same thing is happening essentially with the unenlightened mind is that we lack wisdom in the unenlightened state so we experience these unwholesome results where we have these struggles and difficulties and complications and we see things as problems and we have this challenge to be able to make decisions in life. So these unwise decisions, because of our lack of wisdom of these natural laws, 
leads to unwholesome results. And as we gradually learn the teachings of the Buddha, we reflect on them to independently verify them. And seeing that they're true, we accumulate this wisdom. And now we practice the teachings and we train the mind and we see the improvement to the condition of the mind. So that all starts with understanding the Four Noble Truths so that you can have this breakthrough of starting to acquire wisdom. And now with this wisdom, you can make wiser choices. So I'm going to help you to understand what's called the three universal truths first. Then we're going to move into the four noble truths. And we call them truths because the Buddha knew that they are truth. I know that they're truth. And other people in the world know that they're truth too. But in order for them to really help you, you need to know that they're truth. And that's where you don't believe what you're learning. You learn it, you reflect, and you practice in order to acquire this wisdom so that you know with 100% certainty that they are the truth. The teachings of the Buddha are timeless. What he taught during his lifetime are the same natural laws that exist today. So what he taught can also help you today. It's not like an outdated teaching or anything like that because he's describing the natural laws. He's describing how your mind functions. He's describing how the world functions through these natural laws. So that's why his teachings are just as applicable today as they were 2,500 years ago. So as I mentioned, as we go, you're welcome to ask questions. And I'm going to use some visual aids to help me explain this to you and then provide you opportunities as we go to be able to ask questions and get help because that's an important part of learning is to be able to get clarification and as you're learning to really be thinking about what it is that the teacher's sharing you know it's not like you're just watching tv and you're just kind of taking in content you have the opportunity to participate and reflect and understand and really think about what it is that i'm sharing with you as part of these teachings so this first universal truth of impermanence is helping you to understand that all these material things in the world are impermanent. So there's this constant change. There isn't this permanent fixed state. This is what's called a conditioned object. A conditioned object will arise, it changes, and then it fades away. This is what's called a conditioned object. There is such thing as an unconditioned object, which doesn't arise, doesn't change, and doesn't fade away. But by and large, the vast majority of things around you are all impermanent. They're conditioned objects. Enlightenment itself is unconditioned. The natural laws of existence are unconditioned. They don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. That's why the teachings of the Buddha are just applicable today as they were during his lifetime because these natural laws haven't changed. They're unconditioned. And there's other things like unconditional love that it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. But this universal truth of impermanence is explaining conditioned objects that they arise, change, and fade away. They're constantly changing. There's not this steady fixed state. So that's a little bit of learning of the universal truth of impermanence. But now you start reflecting on this. And now I'm going to help you start to see how to reflect. Once you've learned something, you start to determine whether it's true or not. So the way that you do this is you try to determine if you can find a permanent object around you. If you can find something that's permanent, then you've disproven this universal truth and it's not a universal truth. Because if it's a universal truth, it's universally true everywhere around you. So you start looking at things like your own physical body. This is a great place to start because it's right here with you and you can look at it, right? You've lived with it so you understand it. 
you ask yourself, is this body permanent or impermanent? If it's permanent, that means it stayed the same your whole life and it hasn't changed at all. If it's impermanent, that means it's been constantly changing as you've gone through life. And if I asked you, is your body permanent or impermanent, you would most likely say it's impermanent, right? Because your hair grows, it changes colors, it changes textures, it changes length, uh, your teeth. When we were children, we had certain teeth, they fell out and then they came back in. The teeth have cavities, that's just impermanence, it's constantly changing. Our complexion has changed where at one time we had more youthful appearance. Now maybe we have a bit of wrinkles or our skin complexion has changed. Uh, as I mentioned, we get gray hair and all these different kind of things. We might get a little bit of fat on our stomach or maybe a lot of growth on our stomach, right? These kind of things occur as the physical body is changing due to this universal truth of impermanence. The physical body is impermanent. So then you look at other things around you. What about your relationships? You can answer this in your mind. Are your relationships permanent or impermanent? Have you had exactly the same relationships your whole life? Or have people been coming and going in and out of your life? The relationships are impermanent. What about your job? Have you had exactly the same job your whole life? Or will you have exactly the same job your whole life? Or have you had different jobs? Or will you ultimately retire and no longer work? Of course, your job is not permanent. It is impermanent. What about your bank account? Is your bank account permanent or does it go up and down and up and down, right? Some of us go down, 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 right? It just depends, but it's impermanent nonetheless. Look at the weather. Is the weather permanent? Is it sunny every single day or is it sometimes cloudy? Is it sometimes rainy? I hear there's snow in places like Las Vegas and things like this, right? So the weather is impermanent. And we can just go on and on and on and look at our car, look at our clothes, look at our furniture, look at so many different things. And you can see that the world around us is impermanent, these conditioned objects. Just walking down the street on the sidewalk, you can see that there's cracks in the sidewalk, there's different shape, different color, different texture of the sidewalk. All these different things are impermanent. So if you can see this with clarity and you've just independently verified it, now you have the wisdom that yes, the universal truth of impermanence is 100% the truth. If you're not seeing that yet, you can ask questions and let me know what your questions are. You can also go around the world and continue to reflect on this and start trying to find something that's permanent. And if you can find something that's permanent, then you've disproven this. So this first universal truth is utterly important to understand as you begin your journey on the path to enlightenment. The second universal truth is called the universal truth of discontentedness. Some people, when they refer to and they talk about the teachings of the Buddha, they refer to this as suffering. I don't use this word, and I'll explain to you why in a bit, but let's talk about this word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness, because this is the word that I feel more accurately reflects what the Buddha was teaching. In the original source teachings, they're in what's called the Pali language. The Buddha used this word dukkha. You might even be familiar with this word if you've seen some of the teachings of the Buddha. This word dukkha, when the Buddha explains what it is, he talks about three feelings. Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This word dukkha 
is translated the way that I translate it to discontentedness. Because pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. This is very pleasant feelings for the mind to experience. Those feelings arise, they change, and they fade away. These are conditioned feelings. Then there's painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. These feelings arise, they change, and they fade away. They're conditioned feelings. They're painful to experience. Then there's feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And for me, I put boredom and loneliness in there, but some people say this is quite painful for them. So you could put that into the painful category if you like. But nonetheless, if you th look at something like shyness, shyness isn't pleasant, it's not painful. So it's neither painful nor pleasant. Or if somebody that you didn't know came and sat really close to you on the bus or some public transportation or at a public park and their body was touching your body, it's not painful it's not pleasant the mind is kind of dissatisfied there's kind of this displeasure in the mind there's this uncomfortableness in the mind this is neither painful nor pleasant so there's these three feelings that the buddha describes that exist in the unenlightened mind there's pleasant feelings painful feelings neither painful nor pleasant these are conditioned feelings they arise they change and then they fade away and i'm referring to this as discontentedness where some people might refer to this as suffering. The word suffering, in my opinion, doesn't describe what the Buddha was describing. When you experience happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering. Or if somebody you didn't know came and sat close to you and their body was touching your body, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering in that situation. Or if you were experiencing shyness, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering. But the mind is discontent. So the word suffering really only describes the painful feelings, that anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. This is sometimes feeling like suffering, those painful feelings. So that's only 33% of what the Buddha was talking about on this particular topic. So if we're only understanding 33% of what the Buddha was sharing, that means we're missing 66% essentially of what he was sharing. And that is going to be very challenging to gain a deep understanding of what he was teaching and how to train the mind if we only understand 33% and we're missing 66%. So here, the way that you independently verify this to reflect on it is you start looking over your experiences in life with all the different feelings that you've had and see if you can find a feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories. If there's some feeling that you've experienced that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, you might decide to ask that question so that I can help you understand this. Because if you can find one feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, then the Buddha isn't explaining a universal truth. Because essentially all unenlightened minds are going to experience discontent feelings, they're going to experience discontentedness, and their mind's going to be discontent. Now, you might be looking at this like, hold on, David, you mean to tell me an enlightened being doesn't experience pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria? This isn't what an enlightened being experiences? Remember what I shared. These are conditioned feelings, meaning they arise, they change, and they fade away. Essentially, the unenlightened mind can only experience pleasant feelings when some condition is met. If 
there are certain conditions that are met, like it's sunny outside, the mind's going to experience pleasant feelings. But perhaps if it's raining, now the mind experiences painful feelings like frustration, irritation, or annoyance, or something else. So the unenlightened mind is only experiencing these conditioned feelings. There needs to be some condition met in order to experience these things. An enlightened mind is beyond the pleasure and pain. It's experiencing unconditioned happiness. It's no longer experiencing this conditional happiness. It's experiencing this joy, this mental quality of joy that is just always there. In the unenlightened state, the mind is untrained, so it can only experience happiness when its conditions are met. Essentially, when it gets what it wants, it will experience happiness. But then ultimately, that happiness is displeasing and dissatisfying because it's only temporary. It only lasts for a few minutes, a few hours, maybe a few days, but eventually that happiness will fade away because it's a conditioned feeling. It arises, changes, and fades away. The unconditioned joy or this unconditioned happiness that's in the enlightened mind, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. The enlightened being is going to wake up feeling peaceful and joyful all day long. They're going to feel peaceful and joyful. They're going to go to sleep peaceful and joyful. There doesn't need to be certain conditions met in order for that happiness or that joy to be in the mind. So this is what's called the universal truth of discontentedness. And I suggest that we use this word rather than what you might see in other publications or teachings about the Buddhist teachings where the word suffering is used. Just replace that with discontent, discontented, or discontentedness because that's what the Buddha was really describing when he describes these three feelings. The mind being excited, it's unstable, it's unsteady, it, it arises this excitement and if you've ever dropped something and broke it or you've twisted your ankle when you've been excited, you know that your mind's shaken up in that situation. The mind is discontent. So when the mind is calm and steady, now you can make wise decisions and you can still experience happiness with this unconditioned happiness or joy that's just always there. But if the mind is shaken up, it's going up and down and up and down, it's very challenging to make wise decisions in that situation to lead to wholesome outcomes. But when the mind is then shaken, now you perhaps will make unwise decisions, which leads to unwholesome results. So the ultimate goal is to train the mind to no longer have these conditional feelings where the mind's going up and down and up and down, but it can instead experience this consistent peacefulness, this joy, this unconditioned happiness that's just always there in the mind. And it's the Four Noble Truths that's going to help you understand how to do that. These here that I'm explaining to you are building blocks to help you understand the Four Noble Truths. The third universal truth is called the universal truth of non-self. Now, typically when I explain this to students who are just starting out, this is usually like an introduction to this universal truth. It's very rare that somebody will just get it and understand it right from the beginning. So it may take you more conversations to understand this, and that's completely normal. You don't necessarily need to understand this in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, but it's good to introduce it to you here. And then as you get further on the path, you'll more readily understand this universal truth and how to actually practice. So here with the universal truth of non-self, what you're understanding is the solution to a problem that the Buddha discovered. The Buddha discovered the problem of what's called personal existence view. 
this is a pollution of mine or a taint or a defilement. We also call it a fetter. It's part of the 10 fetters, the 10 individual pollutions that the Buddha found in the mind that is hindering it from experiencing this enlightened mental state. And what somebody's working to do on this path is eliminate these 10 fetters. And all the teachings of the Buddha are guiding you to eliminate these 10 fetters. So this first fetter of personal existence view, this pollution or defilement or taint of the mind is where the unenlightened mind falsely believes or mistakenly understands or has this misperception that this physical body and or this mind is who you are as a person. So there's this self-image that you might have and the mind's clinging to this self-image related to the physical body and it's also clinging to this self-identity in the mind and it's clinging to this and holding on to it and now with relationship to the self-image and the self-identity whenever the mind hears agreeable things about the self-image or self-identity you'll experience pleasant feelings. If somebody says, oh, David, you're wearing white clothes. They look so nice and so handsome. It brings out the color of your eyes. You might be like, oh, wow, that feels so great. I get all these happy feelings based on the condition that somebody's complimenting me or complimenting these clothes, this self-image. But then because of impermanence, it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading or disparaging about this self-image or these clothes or the hair or your skin or your wrinkles or how much weight you have or something else related to the self-image. And when you hear this disagreeable contact, this disparaging contact, then the mind experiences this sadness, this anger, frustration, or irritation. And the same thing is going on with the self-identity. If you have this self-identity that I am American, or I am French, or I am British, or I am Australian, or I am Chinese, or any of these other I am, I am, like I am a doctor, or I am a police officer, or I am an electrician, or I am a carpenter, any of this I am, I am, I am that the mind is identifying. Even I am a Buddhist teacher. If I hear people say agreeable things that are so loving and wonderful about Buddhist teachers, then there would be these pleasant feelings that come into the mind if the mind is clinging to this self-identity, thinking that this is who I am as a person. Because then it's only a matter of time before someone says something degrading and disparaging about Buddhist teachers. And now, if there's this pollution of personal existence view in the mind, where the mind's clinging to this self-identity, thinking that this is who I am as a person, this Buddhist teacher. Now when someone says something degrading about Buddhist teachers, now because the mind thinks that I am a Buddhist teacher, now you're going to experience painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, or others. So the universal truth of non-self is the solution to all of this. The Buddha is explaining to you that there is no self. There is no self. Even though the unenlightened mind clings to this body and this mind thinking that this is who you are as a person, the Buddha is saying in reality, there is no self. So part of this path is to train the mind to realize non-self, where you can realize that this body and this mind isn't you. There is a body, there is a mind, but none of these things are you. These are just brought together for this existence, and we call that a person, or we call that a human being, but that's not who you are. 
Now, this is the learning, or at least the introduction, of the universal truth of non-self and how it remedies and eliminates this personal existence view so that the mind can get to more peacefulness and more joy. But you can now reflect on this and independently verify it. The way that you do this is you can ask yourself, you know, where are you? Where is David, right? Or whatever your name is, you can point, you know, where are you? And typically what the mind will do is it'll point either to your chest or to your head or something like this. And it'll say, I'm right here. David is right here. Well, if someone points to the chest, it's like, no, well, that's just a shirt. That shirt isn't David. So where are you? Where is David? So now somebody might point again, after we've taken the shirt off, somebody might point again and say, no, that's just skin. That's not David. That shirt nor the skin is David. So let's get rid of the skin. Where is David? Someone might point again. No, that's just ribs. That's just muscle tissue. That's just fluid and organs. None of that stuff is David. None of that stuff is me. But the unenlightened mind falsely believes that that is me. But these aren't me. This isn't me. That's not who I am. It's just physical structures, right? And if you point here, it's the same thing, right? Another way you can verify this is think about how you viewed yourself when you were a child, when you were a teenager, early adulthood, and now. Hasn't the perception of who you think you are as a person been constantly changing? You've looked at yourself as one way when you were a child. When you were a teenager, you looked at yourself in another way, early adulthood. And now you've looked at yourself as being something different. Your character and personality has been constantly changing. When you looked at yourself, there is no permanent self. There isn't a never changing permanent self. The mind has been constantly evolving in how you think of yourself. So there is no self there. The other way you can do that is you can look at the physical body. If this physical body is you and now the body experiences an amputation, like one of your arms got cut off. Now you have one hand and one arm. Are you less of a person now that you have one arm and one hand? The answer is no, you're not less of a person. You have less use of a hand and an arm, but you're not less of a person. If this body is you, that means when you've got an amputation, you'd be less of a person when you experience the amputation, but you're not less of a person. You just have less use of a hand and an arm. So this is a way you can reflect and you can see even early in practice like this, that there is no self. But the challenge is, is that the mind is going to be constantly grasping and looking for a self. Oftentimes someone might say, well, if there's no me here, if there's no you, then what am I? That's just the mind grasping and longing and looking for a self. Sometimes people have such challenges with this personal existence view that they might feel like I've lost myself. I don't even know who I am anymore. I'm going to go on this journey to go find myself. People come here to Thailand sometimes on this journey to find themselves. They've left America or Canada or Australia or UK or other places, and they're trying to find themselves. Well, they never find themselves because the self doesn't exist. They might find new hobbies. They might find new activities or new friends. And those things feel fulfilling for a period of time, maybe a few years or so. But then eventually the mind gets right back into the same problem that they can't find themselves. 
or if you've had a certain job before and you had that job for a period of time and you started identifying with that job as your self-identity, then when you lost that job or you retired or you're no longer doing that job, you might have felt like a part of you is missing because your mind was grasping and holding on to this job, making it part of your self-identity. And then when you were no longer doing that anymore, the mind had difficulties and struggles with that and it had discontentedness. Or if you've ever been in a relationship where you've been a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband or a wife, and you assumed this role as boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, and that became part of your self-identity. And now with that self-identity, you felt really good when you were in that role. But then when the relationship was over and you were no longer a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, the mind struggled and it really wanted to get back into a relationship to assume that role again because the mind was struggling with being single in this example, right? So this is the complications, some of them at least, that occurs when there's this pollution of personal existence view. And the Buddha is giving you the solution of the universal truth of non-self to help you see how to practice and how to train the mind to realize non-self and train the mind to understand that this body, this self-image, nor this self-identity, this mind, is you. And when you come to understand that and you deeply practice that, you can get to the point where somebody says something agreeable or disagreeable, it doesn't shake up the mind. So I'm gonna pause here and help answer any questions that you might have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and the moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like. Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you, Teacher David. Uh, Teacher David, my question is really just simple. Um, just a situation. Uh, I have been showing loving kindness and generosity to these coworkers, and I heard them saying negative things about me. They didn't know that I could hear them, and they said some really, you know, unfortunate things about me. And I instantly got a really pain in my chest and it's been really haunting me. And I, I'm, as I'm listening to you talk about non-self, is this my mind clinging to this self that's causing me to have this unfortunate discontentedness about this? Yes, that's the personal existence view. The mind wants to uphold a certain reputation. And then when you hear this disagreeable contact, the mind doesn't like that and it gets shaken up because of it. So we're not talking about, you know, what's right or wrong, because it would be wise for people to never talk disparaging and degrading about other people. But unfortunately, we live in this impermanent world where not everybody is going to talk polite, kind, friendly and respectful about you. So as long as there's this pollution of personal existence view where the mind has a certain self image or certain self identity that it's clinging to, when it hears this disagreeable speech, it's going Going to be shaken up so what i would encourage you to do here is just think about that as okay that's their opinion that's what they think that's what they're choosing to communicate 
I'm not going to allow that to shake up the mind. And you need to cut off and let go of any discontentedness there. This is part of the Eightfold Path that we're going to describe next week. And I've already talked about it in this program as well. But you'll need to train the mind to cut that off and let it go. And this is where the real practice comes in. So even though this is uncomfortable right now, this actually can help you to eliminate this personal existence view because now that it's being triggered, you're going to need to start to realize non-self and let go of trying to hold on and cling to any particular self-image or self-identity. And how would I do that? Would just be repeating to myself that, you know, this is, you know, this is, this, this is impermanent, this self is impermanent, I am impermanent, this being here is impermanent, and how they feel is just them, and just kind of repeat that to myself over and over again to try to just kind of like let it go because... I mean, I, I, I know I made some poor decisions because I knew I was feeling discontentedness, but I was having a heart battling. Like I was trying to tell myself, it's their opinion, it doesn't matter, it's whatever, it's whatever. But I, it, it stayed with me. It almost was like forming this mental object. And and, and I, as I'm see, hearing this class today, I'm seeing it. And I just, you know, just repeating to myself over and over again, this is impermanent, the self, this being is impermanent, they're impermanent, it's just, let it go yes that's a good way to do it Uh, that's a good way and it's not going to be easy to do that particularly when there's heavy personal existence view in the mind so this is the mental object all those fetters are mental objects they're pollutions they're defilements so you keep training your mind consistently with breathing mindfulness meditation generosity all the things that you've learned as part of this program marcy even though we're kind of getting into areas that i wasn't planning to talk about today it's okay that's okay that's all right you can ask any question you like but you know the solution to what i'm describing here really comes through the eightfold path which we'll talk about next week but you're understanding the problem and you're even understanding part of the solution but there's other things besides just what you're describing so maybe we can take this offline and we can talk about it and describe more of the solution and we can even discuss it next week too as part of the eightfold path because that's a opportune time to really talk about some of these challenges that you guys experience in life and then how to eliminate it and train the mind to no longer experience that shaking up and discontentedness thank you teacher david yeah you're welcome it's a great example i don't see any more questions at this time teacher david Okay, so let's go to the next part of what I was planning to share with you guys as we lead into the Four Noble Truths. It's important to understand the definition behind these words because this is another building block to help you understand the Four Noble Truths. These words that we tend to use in language, they mean one thing, but we need to really define them as we understand them through Buddhist teachings so that you'll understand how we use them in Buddhist teachings. The word craving, desire, attachment, also expectations, wants, holding, grasping, clinging, things like this. What this means is the mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. The mind is chasing after the objects of its affection. There's this yearning, this longing for something. It might feel like the mind is pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. It's like the next new shiny object waiting around the corner 
the unenlightened mind thinks that this is going to provide some lasting satisfaction. So the mind chases it, chases it, chases it. It wants the objects of its affection and it thinks it's going to provide lasting satisfaction. You might have been in the mall and you saw a new pair of shoes. You're like, oh my goodness, the new pair of shoes. Yes, I got to have those new pair of shoes. And your mind was just pulling towards that and just thinking that that was going to make everything better in your life. Or you might have saw some new technology at the mall, like a new phone or a new computer or something like this, or some new clothing or a purse or makeup or some objects, maybe new job or a new house or a new car, maybe a new friend, a new boyfriend, new girlfriend. You were chasing after this thing thinking it was going to provide you lasting satisfaction. This is the craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing for something, the yearning. Now, if you can think about this with your own direct experience, you should be able to see how your mind has experienced this at different times. So it's important for you to understand this craving, desire, attachment, the expectations, the wants, the holding, the grasping, the clinging, because this is needing to be understood in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, which I'll explain to you now. The Four Noble Truths starts with the first Noble Truth, and then we explore the other ones as well. Here in four individual statements, you're going to understand the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. So the first noble truth is explaining the problem. The problem is, is that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness, those conditional feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. These feelings arise, they change, and they fade away. This is discontentedness. This is the problem. So if your mind is experiencing those conditioned feelings, then you know that your mind is unenlightened. And there's nothing to be worried about. There's nothing to be upset about. Every single human being that's born is unenlightened when they're born. So now that you know that the mind is unenlightened, then the next question becomes, well, how is this discontentedness occurring and how can I eliminate it? And that's what we learn in the subsequent noble truths. So this path is recognizing, okay, your mind is experiencing this discontentedness. Now, what is the cause of that? So then I can work to eliminate it. So you're not a bad person. You haven't done anything wrong. It's just that the mind lacks wisdom. It lacks understanding. And it's these four noble truths that's going to help you to understand now the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. So the first noble truth is explaining the problem that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. Now, the second noble truth is explaining the cause of this problem. The cause here is explained discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. I'm going to explain this a few times. I'm going to break it down for you. I'm going to give you examples and help you reflect on this so that you can independently verify this for yourself. So what's being shared here is that that discontentedness, those conditioned feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. These are caused by craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness, the chasing after the objects of your affection, the yearning, thinking that the next new shiny object around the corner is going to provide lasting satisfaction. The mind is craving, yearning, longing for things to be permanent when in fact we live in this impermanent world, which you understand from the universal truth of impermanence. So now that we've talked about this, let's use some examples so that you can understand it through 
things that I'm sure you've experienced at one point or another. If you've been in a relationship where you've been boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband and wife, when you guys first met, there was a certain craving, a certain desire, a certain attachment, a longing, a yearning, wanting a partner. And your mind might have even you know, chased after that or your mind might have reveled in that. And now when you've got the objects of your affection, which is this person who's showing interest in you, maybe sending you text messages, inviting you out on dates, taking you places, you may have even been intimate at different times, you experience these pleasant feelings, this conditional pleasant feeling that somebody's showing affection to me, so therefore I'm gonna experience these conditional feelings based on this condition of somebody showing interest in me. So the mind experienced these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. Now, as time went on, the relationship broke up for one reason or another, you guys ended the relationship. And now the mind might have experienced those painful feelings where there's this anger, sadness, frustration, irritation. You might have even experienced loneliness and boredom during this time because now the mind is experiencing this impermanence. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand impermanence. It's got this craving, this yearning, this longing, wanting this relationship to be permanent. It's holding on, it's clinging. It's expecting this relationship to be permanent. It's wanting this relationship to be permanent. And then when it was met with this impermanence, the unenlightened mind didn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. So now because the mind is clinging and holding on, craving permanence, once the relationship was over, now the sadness, anger, frustration, and other discontent feelings come into the mind. So oftentimes what we do in the unenlightened state is we blame those painful feelings on somebody else. We say, you are making me angry, or you are frustrating me, or you are irritating me, or we blame it on the situation. We'll say, that is annoying me. In reality, that's not true. And that's what the Buddha is explaining to you here in the Four Noble Truths, that you have the opportunity to have this breakthrough and be able to see true reality, that it's not the situation that's annoying you. It's not the person that is causing you to be frustrated or angry or sad or some other discontent feeling. It's the mind causing it itself. It's the craving, desire, attachment. It's the longing. It's the yearning. The mind is causing these feelings itself. But in the unenlightened state, because we misunderstand and we have this unknowing of true reality, we falsely attribute these painful feelings to somebody else. And what we will typically do in that situation is we will push this person away. This is aversion. And we think that that's going to solve the problem. If we push them away and get them out of our life or we get this situation out of our life, that will solve the problem. But it doesn't because then the mind gets angry again or it gets frustrated again about something else. It doesn't solve the problem because that's not the true problem. So as long as the mind has wrong view and it falsely attributes these painful feelings to this individual or to the situation and you keep pushing them away, then you're going to just keep experiencing the problem over and over and over again where the mind keeps getting frustrated, irritated, annoyed and other things. The other thing that can happen is if the mind is falsely attributing these painful feelings to an individual or to a situation, you can become harsh, bitter, hostile, resentful, and your moral conduct can become unskillful, where your speech and your actions now become bitter and harsh directed at a person. And now that person chooses to leave out of your life 
because they're not interested in being around that harshness and bitterness. And in this way, in the unenlightened state, as long as these cravings, desires, attachments, these wants, these expectations are in the mind, you can only associate with a certain limited number of people because it's not possible for everybody to do things your way. So as long as this cravings are in there, the mind's going to be going up with these pleasant feelings that are temporary and conditional. And then it's going to be coming down with these painful feelings, these conditional feelings. The mind's going up and down and up and down. And in certain situations, you might have been pushing people out of your life thinking that that's going to solve the problem. Or you might have been bitter and harsh and aggressive with people. And then they're bitter, harsh and aggressive with you back. And this just keeps the problem going on and on and on. It's like a cycle a continuous cycle that keeps going around and around and around and around. Here's another example. If you've ever bought something brand new, like a brand new car or a bicycle or shoes or any particular object, say you got this brand new car and now you got these pleasant feelings like, yay, I got a brand new car. Oh, everybody's going to think I'm so rich and so wonderful and I'm so accomplished. I'm so successful. Yay, I got this brand new car. And you might be driving around thinking that, wow, I'm so great. Look at me. I got this brand new car. And you have all these conditional feelings. But then you park the car and you go into a store and you come out and you might see a scratch on your car. And now the mind gets angry or frustrated or irritated. It's not the scratch that's causing that. It's not the person who scratched your car that's causing that irritation and that frustration. Instead, it's the mind having craving. It's this desire, this longing, yearning, wanting this car to be permanent. And now when the mind was confronted with this impermanence, it didn't like it. It didn't understand this impermanence. And now this frustration and irritation arose in the mind. Now, it would be perfect if the car never got scratched, right? If every single shopping cart, you know, went to the right place, if the wind never blew and banged a shopping cart up against your car, or if the children who were pushing the shopping carts had enough strength that they were able to control the shopping carts. If all these things happened, we'd live in a permanent world, but we don't live in that world. We live in an impermanent world where this car is going to get a scratch. The tires are going to get old. The window washers are going to need to be replaced. The glass is going to break. The paint is going to fade. These things occur because of impermanence. But as long as the mind is craving and longing and yearning, wanting this car to be permanent, now when it starts seeing all this impermanence, it's going to get shaken up. It's going to experience this discontentedness. So we're not talking about what's right or wrong here because it'd be wonderful, like I said, if nobody ever scratched your car. But we live in an impermanent world, so these things are going to occur. And we can either choose to get angry, frustrated, irritated, and annoyed when these things happen. And there's even been people who have been murdered over these things. There's people sitting in jail right now because of their misunderstanding and they didn't understand impermanence. And they might have killed somebody who scratched their car or did something like this. And now they've, you know, essentially are in jail having all kinds of difficulties. So this lack of wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence and this craving desire attachment is causing havoc in people's lives because the mind becomes unskillful. And now our intentions, our speech and our actions become so unskillful that we might do something as significant as beat somebody up or even murder. But we can train the mind to eliminate this discontentedness with the third noble truth. But before we move into the third noble truth, 
let's just pause for a second and see what questions you guys have. What I suggest that you do here with the second noble truth is that you think about certain experiences that you've had in life and you think about certain situations where you were frustrated, you were irritated, you were annoyed, the mind was otherwise discontent. And while in that situation, you might have blamed other people and you might have blamed the situation, it might have been today, it might have been yesterday or last week where your mind was experiencing some discontentedness and you were blaming the people around you, either internally or overtly. Even though then you were blaming other people, now with this wisdom, look at that experience and ask yourself, what was it that you were craving? What was it you were desiring? What was the mental longing and strong eagerness? What was the mind craving to be permanent? And if you would like to share that during our question period, you can share that. If you would like help to understand how your mind is actually causing this, you might not be able to see this very clearly with just what I'm sharing. You know, there's been students who have asked me, you know, I came home and my partner had the house a complete wreck. They were doing some project and the house was a complete wreck. And I walked in from work and I I got angry and frustrated. How did I cause that when it was my partner who had the house with all kinds of things, you know, spread out all over the house? So if you need help like that, if you're having a certain situation that you're reflecting on and you can't see how your mind caused it itself, ask me that during the question period. Because essentially what the second noble truth is explaining to you is that your mind is causing its own discontentedness. In order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to see this very clearly and accept responsibility for the condition of the mind. Because one of the things that the unenlightened mind does when it has wrong view and it falsely attributes its painful feelings to other people is you might be going around trying to convince other people to do things your way. You might be putting expectations and wants on people and trying to control them and force them to do things your way. And as long as you're going to do this, you're going to have rub and harshness and hostility in your relationships. And you're going to find it very challenging to exist peacefully and harmoniously in all your different relationships. So let me know what questions you have related to this and I will help you. So you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, Mr. David. Let's go to Tanka. Thank you, Christy. On YouTube, we have James saying the Buddhism society is quite peaceful because the second noble truth they believe in and question mark. So if you want to address that, teacher David. Yeah, so a person who's training their mind to get to enlightenment would understand these, but it takes time for you to gradually understand this, right? One of the big myths about Buddhist teachings is they think that the Buddha sat under a tree, he meditated, and he instantly got to enlightenment, and this isn't actually how it occurred. And when you read his teachings and you see his own words, he explains that it wasn't instantaneous. It was gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. So a person who's on the path to enlightenment would need to start with this and deeply understand it. And ultimately, this is what helps leads to peacefulness. We don't believe these teachings. We never believe anything. Instead, we learn, we reflect, to independently verify, and then we practice. And this accumulates wisdom. And through the training of the mind, you can see the truth 
that the Buddha discovered the true understanding of what's causing discontentedness and how to eliminate it because his teachings lead exactly where he said they do. He talks about this enlightened mind being stable, steady, and unshakable. And that's what you'll experience as your mind gets closer and closer to enlightenment. You'll experience this peacefulness and this joy, this calmness and serenity in the mind. So you shouldn't believe this, but instead deeply investigate it to be able to acquire the wisdom. And yes, places that are deeply understanding this, if there's a population of people, there can be a lot of peace because when you live in a population of people that are going around constantly blaming each other for the feelings that they're experiencing, this is the unknowing of true reality. And now someone blames somebody else, like you are making me uncomfortable or you are making me angry. And now that person is gonna try to convince this other person to do things their way. Because if you, in the unenlightened state, if you do things my way, now I get these pleasant feelings and I feel happy. But if you don't do things my way, then I'm gonna experience these painful feelings and I'm gonna have wrong view and falsely attribute them to you. But in a group of people that understands any feelings they're experiencing is a result of their own mind and what's going on in their mind, now you can get to peacefulness. As long as someone's blaming other people for what they experience in life and the feelings that they experience, then they're gonna to continue to experience those feelings because they're blaming everybody else for the feelings that are going on in their mind. And then this is where people try to force and control others to do things their way, or they might judge other people. They might call people bad names. They might talk negatively about others because of their own wrong view. And this is just the unfortunate thing about the unenlightened mind that it doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. But with wisdom, you can get to a point where you gradually learn these teachings and you gradually get liberated. Other people around you might be angry and frustrated and irritated, but you won't be. Your mind will be peaceful. And here in Thailand, we've got a large population of people, millions of people that grow up learning these teachings. And we see a lot of peacefulness in this society. We don't see people judging each other. We don't see people talking down to each other. We don't see people degrading and disparaging each other. We see a lot of politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect. And we see a lot of smiles because people understand the truth and they understand that they're responsible for their own feelings. And now if you understand you're responsible for your own feelings, then it's up to you to train your own mind to be able to get to this enlightened mental state where there's peacefulness and joy. And then there's lots of people around like me that are here to help you to learn and understand these teachings so that you can gradually train your mind to awaken to this enlightened mental state. Because what we've experienced growing up through life is we experienced this conditioning. Whereas if you grew up in a environment where there's hostility or aggression or bitterness and everybody's blaming each other for the feelings they're experiencing, then your mind has been conditioned to believe that. But what you're doing with the path to enlightenment and the teachings of the Buddha is you're unconditioning the mind. You're unraveling this mind and eliminating this conditioning so that you can get to this unconditioned mind where you see true reality of what's truly going on. And now with this gradual training, you can train your mind to be liberated from these strong feelings and get to this peace, this joy, and this enlightened mental state where there's no longer these strong feelings that are hindering the mind. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. One more question from James. 
There are around 300,000 ordained practitioners in Thailand. How many of them would be finally enlightened in estimated number of percent? We don't keep records of how many people are enlightened because it's something that each individual is working towards on their own. There's not like a database of enlightened people or anything like this. Instead, each person is responsible for their own growth, their own spiritual growth. Here in Thailand with the 300,000 ordained practitioners, they're all at different places on the path to enlightenment. And there are certain people that we know that are enlightened and people in the community know that are enlightened, but it's not like they have a certificate or a badge or anything like that that they wear around. It's just that people know that they're enlightened because we can see through the way that they function. You can see through someone's intentions, their speech, their actions, the way that they interact. You can see this loving kindness and compassion. You can see that they're never even a bad mood. That's essentially an easy way to think about the enlightened mind, that you're just always in a good mood because all the conditions that are causing the bad mood have been eliminated from the mind. And now the mind is is unconditioned. It's just always in a good mood. So we don't have records on how many people are enlightened, but I do know of people here that are enlightened, uh, ordained practitioners, but also household practitioners too. This is another myth that's in the Buddhist community. Some people think that only ordained practitioners can get to enlightenment, but this is actually untrue. Household practitioners can get to enlightenment as well. In fact, I know more household practitioners who are enlightened than I do ordained practitioners. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go to Marcy. Thank you again, Teacher David and Chrissy. Um, so upon reflection, Teacher David, I, I'm reflecting and I'm realizing that, and, and I'm not sure if this is, if I'm on the right, if I'm thinking correctly, but I found that with that situation, I was trying to combat the mind to let go and not have ill will. But then I started noticing that, like, for instance, you know, she, this this person reset a, a, a thing of items and instead of removing the tags, she left the tags. So I felt myself get angry and upset that she left the tags. So things were marked incorrectly. So I'm feeling like I'm having like this culmination of like, a, like almost like a snowball effect of cravings, ill will rolling up. And it was like it perpetuated. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this. Is it to have all of these cravings all at once? Like you have multiple different cravings and all combined all at once? Yes, early in practice like this, there's multiple cravings. It's not just one that's causing it. It can be multiple layers. So you need to peel this back like an onion and see what are the actual cravings. So let's just take a simple part of it. And there's multiple layers there. But like in this situation, to illustrate the second noble truth is that you're craving for every tag to be accurate in the store. And that's a long yearning. Now, what you would like to do is bring that to a goal, to an objective and realize in permanence that not everybody is going to understand how to tag the merchandise. And your role, perhaps, is to gradually help people to learn. Whereas if you were indifferent and you didn't care, and you're just like, ah, oh, whatever, who cares if it's marked correctly or not? I don't care. That's not going to promote peacefulness and joy in the mind. But also if you're longing and yearning and wanting every single thing to be 100% correct all the time, that's the permanence that the mind's craving. Essentially what the second noble truth is explaining to you is not only is the mind craving permanence, but the unenlightened mind does not understand 
impermanence. It does not like change. It does not like that things are different. So what you would like to do is be calm and patient and understanding and loving and kind and help this person to gradually understand. And when your mind is calm, when you don't have this craving and this frustration arising in the mind, when your mind is calm, you can more readily and kindly go to this person and help them if that's your role to be able to understand how to tag this merchandise properly. Thank you, teacher David. Um, I'm a bit hesitant, but I want to share an experience just to figure out the craving. I think I understand the craving, but um, so just share the story. Sure, sounds good. Um, so I had asked my life partner to um, take care of the dog while I was gone and the kids were gone um, because the craving was to have his needs met and have him be taken care of while I wasn't able to do that. Um, and so it's similar to the example you gave, um, but a bit different. And when I came home, he, the dog had messed the kennel and immediately there was discontentedness in me um, and I went straight to blame but also not blame um, there was well there was blame but then there was also what happened <laughs> um, and so I didn't I, I feel like I practiced speech a little better than I would have in the past but it still wasn't beneficial and I think it was the pause I needed to wait for the pause because I was still upset and actually a bit sick cleaning up the mess um, so I'm wondering what your thoughts and advice would be yeah see that's the challenge when there's craving desire attachment in the mind that there's these strong feelings that come up into the mind and now an individual finds it very difficult to practice right intention, right speech, and right action. And now we start being bitter and harsh or blameful, even if it's in our own mind. And now we direct this towards another person. And we oftentimes damage our relationships and we have difficulties living harmoniously and peaceful with all beings around us. So what I would have done in that situation is if I came home and I saw the kennel was a mess, it's like, all right, well, it's a mess. I would prefer for it to be clean, but just like the cleanliness is not permanent, this mess is not permanent either. So let me just clean up the mess and then I'll clean up the mess, get the dog what the dog needs, whether it's food or water or a bath or clean the kennel or whatever it is. Let's just take care of that. That's the initial thing that's right in front of me. And let me handle that. And now that we handle that, when I see my partner, I might ask them, you know, did you have any issues with taking care of the dog? And they may say, oh yeah, I left for like, uh, you know, five hours and I got a flat tire or my mom needed help and I needed to take my mom to the hospital or whatever it is. You don't know, but there's some impermanence somewhere or perhaps um, they did clean and they left and then 30 minutes later, maybe it had a bowel movement and it messed the kennel. You don't really know the situation, but there was some impermanence somewhere. Nonetheless, there's this mess that needs to be cleaned up. So I would focus on that first. And then if you needed to follow up with the person, be sure your mind's calm, that there's 
no agitation or irritation in the mind. It might take you a few hours or a few days to be able to talk about that. Eventually, when you get to the point where the mind's enlightened, you won't experience any agitation. You won't experience anything at all. But as you're making your way towards that, you're not interested in talking and having discussion about something when the mind is irritated and frustrated because the only thing that's going to come out of the mind and through the mouth is this irritation and frustration and it's just not going to turn out well. So it's better to wait for the mind to be calm because truly this feces that's, I'm assuming feces or urine that's in the, the kennel, it's impermanent. You know, there's no need to damage relationships over something like impermanent. So we can just take our time, we can clean up the mess, and then we can follow up and just be sure that there wasn't something that you maybe miscommunicated. Because sometimes the mind goes right to blame. Maybe there was something that they didn't understand about your communication. And there's something you need to work on that before you leave next time to be sure that you communicate more clearly about what it is that's needed. So the only way that you're going to uncover where the impermanence is, is that you have an open discussion where you investigate, was it my directions and my guidance? Was it, you know, them not understanding? Was it that they left and they had some other thing that came up that they weren't able to address the problem? Or was it uh, just that they had cleaned the kennel? And then, you know, 10 minutes before I came home, this is what happened and the dog made a mess. So you just don't know what the impermanence is. So this training on the Eightfold Path that we're going to talk about next week is going to train the mind to be calm and peaceful where you can then address the situation and have a discussion that leads to resolution. But understanding that you're always looking for what were the decisions I made in the situation that contributed to this situation? Because those are the only things that I can truly control. And if the other person chooses to take responsibility for anything that they could have improved, then wonderful. We're both working on our own individual decisions. But as soon as the mind wants to blame somebody else, that's where the conversation erodes and now it devolves into something that is going to be very problematic for us. I understand. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. It appears that is all the questions we have at this time. Okay. So I'm going to go on to the third noble truth. But before I do, I'd like to just pause for a second based on some of the questions you guys had. As you're learning these teachings of the Buddha, it's important to understand that you can't snap your fingers and immediately implement these. You know, Marcy and Chrissy talking about the things that they're talking about. They've been learning for about a year or two, I think. So you'll understand that you can't just snap your fingers, even though you might see the truth in the teachings of the Buddha. You can't snap your fingers and just implement these teachings. You need to gradually train the mind. So where you see the mind is becoming frustrated or irritated or annoyed or these other feelings, be sure not to beat yourself up and think that you're a bad person, that you weren't able to learn in class right now and then tomorrow you're going to be able to perfectly do this where your mind no longer gets discontent. You're going to have a period of time for perhaps years where the mind is gradually working towards the goal of enlightenment and it's gradually diminishing discontentedness over time. So this isn't about, you know, learn it and then hurry up and implement it and you're going to be enlightened by the end of the week. That's not the way this works. It's gradual training, gradual practice, which leads to gradual progress. And it's important that where you see the challenges that you're experiencing, 
teaching that you objectively look at those and you get help from your teacher if you need help so that you can then investigate what is causing those discontent feelings. What are the cravings that are there? What is the longing and yearning that the mind wants? There's some permanence that it wants. And if you can uncover that, which we're going to talk more closely about in chapter 12 and 13, I'm going to help you to be able to identify these attachments. Right now, I'm helping to build the foundation to understand the path to enlightenment. And then as we go forward in this program, I'm going to provide you some more tools to help you identify these areas of discontentedness and just understand that it's going to be this gradual transformation of the mind. So I would like to be sure to share that with you guys. Because the third noble truth is explaining how to eliminate discontentedness. And it's really quite straightforward because if the second noble truth is explaining the cause of the problem is the craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness, then the third noble truth is explaining the elimination of discontentedness as possible by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. If the cause of the problem is craving, desire, attachment, then the elimination is the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, training the mind to no longer have this longing and yearning and chasing after things, wanting the kennel to be permanently beautiful and clean. It's not possible for it to be that way. Or wanting all the tags on the merchandise to be 100% correct all the time. This is the craving that the mind wants, the permanence that it's yearning for, but you can train the mind to eliminate that and understand that that's just not possible. It's not realistic. And you can train the mind to be in the middle where there's this goal, there's this objective, there's this interest that you would like things to be this way, but all the while knowing that it's not possible for things to be this way. And what we do to train the mind through generalized training is we use breathing mindfulness meditation, which is this meditation that I taught in this program over four sessions. I started you guys out understanding breathing mindfulness meditation and I've encouraged you to build up your practice to two or three meditations of 30 minutes or more. And there again, it's gonna take gradual training, gradual practice and gradual progress. You may not be at 30 minutes, two or three sessions a day right now. Some people take quite a while to build up to this, but wherever you're at, that's where you're at. You're on your own independent journey. If you're at one session for 10 minutes a day, okay, that's where you're at, but work towards the goal of two to three for 30 minutes. Or if you're at two sessions for 15 minutes each, okay, great, that's where you're at. But keep building up your practice, making more and more space in your life. Because in that breathing mindfulness meditation, you're arising this mindfulness where you're aware of what's going on in the mind. In order to purify the mind of these pollutions, you need to be aware of what's in the mind, and that's called mindfulness. And we're gonna be describing this next week when we talk about right mindfulness, because not only do you need to have awareness of the mind, but you'll need to understand the four foundations of mindfulness to be able to train the mind. So you'll need that mindfulness, that awareness of mind that you're cultivating in meditation. And then you're going to need the concentration. When you're focused on the breath, a single object like the breath, you're training the mind to have concentration. And this is important because in your daily life, when you're doing various things, you're going to need that singleness of mind. If your mind is rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, it's going to be challenging for you to have things like right speech. It's going to be challenging for you to bring these teachings into practice if your mind is rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing. So so you're focused on the breath and meditation to arise this concentration or singleness of mind. 
And then when you're focused on the breath and the mind moves off the breath in meditation, you're training the mind to cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back to the breath. You're not repressing the feelings. Instead, what you're doing is you're gaining this discipline or this control of the mind where you see that there is a thought and that the mind moved off the breath. And now you're able to cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath. And this becomes important because in daily life, if you've exercised your mind this way in meditation, now in daily life, when you observe that, oh my goodness, here comes some frustration, I'm not interested in that coming into the mind, I can cut that off and let it go. You can do that when you've trained your mind in meditation this way. Or if you come home and you see the kennel and you see that you know there's a mess in there and you start feeling this agitation arising, you can cut it off and you can gain this inner discipline of the mind with more and more practice. Or if you see an employee has put tags on merchandise that aren't supposed to be there and you start feeling this agitation or irritation or annoyance starting to arise, you can cut it off. And now you can more readily have a, a wonderful conversation with this person, whether it's your life partner or a coworker, and address whatever challenge is being faced. Rather than looking at it as a problem and somebody's done something wrong, you just look at it as a challenge. There's some impermanence somewhere. Let's figure out what that impermanence is and let's do that in a peaceful and joyful and harmonious way. And now we can just address the issue, whatever it is. We don't need to be angry and frustrated. That doesn't solve the problem. That is the problem, right? We're trying to address this challenge and figure out where the impermanence is. And now, in a peaceful, harmonious, joyful way, we can actually address the issue. So when we eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness, using breathing mindfulness meditation on a consistent, ongoing basis, we gain this discipline of the mind so that in daily life, we can now address whatever it is that we're experiencing. And then as we slowly transform the mind, you'll get to this point where those discontent feelings are no longer arising because you've eliminated all the cravings that are producing it. The other thing that we do in order to eliminate craving, desire, attachment is we practice generosity. Generosity is the giving and sharing of more than is strictly required in any given situation. So we practice giving and sharing our time, effort, energy, and resources. And you can be doing this on a daily basis where you're looking for ways to share with people, whether it's your food, whether it's your time, perhaps you have some extra money that you're able to purchase things for people and share. Some people like to give donations to temples or teachers or things like this. These aren't things that are expected or required, but it's something that you can actually do in order to train the mind to let go. Because a mind with craving, desire, attachment, it becomes very selfish and it holds on to things very tightly. And what you're trying to do with your time, effort, energy, and resources is train the mind to let go. So if you're walking into a store and you're opening the door for yourself and you just walk through, okay, you haven't done anything wrong. But if you'd like to practice generosity where you're giving and sharing more than is strictly required in any given situation of your time, effort, energy, and resources, you might hold the door and let somebody else go through, right? And that's practicing generosity. And you can do that with a smile. Or if you're opening a bag of potato chips and there's people around, you might offer some potato chips to somebody. 
right? Or if somebody drops something on the floor, you might pick it up and say, hey, sir, you dropped this, or ma'am, you dropped this, right? You might do that as part of your practice of generosity. Or if you're going out at lunchtime and you buy some fruit or some snacks or donuts or uh, milkshakes or something, you might bring some back for other people at your work environment. And this helps to create closeness and friendliness. But what you're doing is you're training your mind to let go and no longer pursue things out of your own selfish desires. Because a mind with craving, desire, attachment tends to be selfish and hold on to things. And it only wants pleasant things. And it feels like if it accumulates all this stuff, that this is what's going to lead to its happiness. We're often taught that wealth or fame or fortune or a job title or certain clothes or a certain car, this is what's going to lead to our happiness. But it doesn't. It leads to conditional happiness where you'll experience temporary happiness that will arise, change, and fade away. But holding on to that car or clothing or money or anything else, it's not going to lead to permanent happiness because it's conditional. So we practice generosity of giving and sharing where you're not just out for your own selfish pursuits, but you realize that you live in this world of interconnected beings and that it's important to give and share with others, your time, effort, energy, and resources. So you can be doing these two things on a consistent ongoing basis and you'll learn the rest of the Eightfold Path as well. But here with breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity, these are two things that you can be doing each and every day. And you need to do that from the middle way as a goal, objective, or interest where you're not craving and longing and yearning and exhausting your time, effort, energy, and resources. But you're also not indifferent and just sitting around being complacent and not interested in giving and sharing with other people. So you do it from the middle way where you have a goal, objective, or interest. And this is how you eliminate craving, desire, attachment on a real micro level. But in reality, it's the fourth noble truth that's really explaining the real solution. The fourth noble truth is the path to eliminating discontentedness is the eightfold path. The Eightfold Path is the complete perfect plan that the Buddha explains the training for you to train your mind to eliminate discontentedness. This is how you eliminate it through training the mind with the Eightfold Path. These are eight individual steps that I've shared in other classes and that I'm going to share next week as well, that you're welcome to attend that class. And there's recordings of these classes if you're not able to make them for any reason. Essentially, these eight steps or these eight factors, you're dialing them in closer and closer. This is the gradual training. This is your life practice. This book is titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. The Eightfold Path is your life practice. That's giving you the complete perfect plan that you dial in closer and closer to understanding how to train your own mind. This is helping you to understand the natural laws of existence. So using the words of the Buddha, Next week, you'll be able to see what did he exactly say? What did he talk about as the Eightfold Path? And I will help you to learn it, to reflect on it, to independently verify that it's true. And then you can move it into practice and see that it actually works to improve the condition of the mind. And then slowly but surely, with this gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress, you'll see the condition of the mind improving. So now we've learned the teachings and you started to reflect on them. And this third noble truth, by the way, you can reflect on that, that if you had that relationship where 
you saw that your mind was angry and frustrated and irritated when you guys separated, there was some point where you might have finally decided, you know what, I'm just going to let this go. I'm going to let this person go in your mind. And that's where you got to peacefulness in this relationship. So we've been learning, reflecting in this class. I've been helping you to learn and reflect on these teachings. But now you would like to move them into practice. The Four Noble Truths need to be moved into practice. The way that you do that is you, from now forward, whenever you experience discontentedness in the mind, where the mind wants to typically blame other people for that discontentedness, instead you go inward and you look inward at your own mind to try to discover what are the cravings, desires, attachments that are leading to this discontentedness. And where you're having challenges to experience that and understand that, you reach out to your teacher for guidance. You can post in the Facebook group, you can ask questions in these classes, you can send me a private message or you can schedule personal guidance. I will help you develop the skill to look inward and be able to see what your own cravings, desires, attachments are. You do that a few times, then you'll be able to do it on your own. Just like I need to help you develop the ability to train your mind through meditation, and that's a skill and ability that you need to develop with my guidance, but you're doing the work on your own. The same thing is true about identifying your attachments, because how could you eliminate them if you weren't able to actually identify them? So you'll need to look inward from this point forward, whenever your mind is experiencing discontentedness, even though in the moment your mind might want to blame other people, and that's what the mind is used to. From this point forward, if you start looking inward, you'll start being able to discover these cravings, desires, attachments, and then you can do the real work to eliminate them so that they're not continuing to cause you discontentedness. Because as long as those cravings are in the mind, you're going to be stuck in this continuous cycle of discontentedness where you're repeatedly experiencing discontentedness. And you might be pushing people out of your life. You might become harsh and bitter with your intention, speech, or actions, and people choose to leave out of your life. And you'll find that it's very challenging to be peaceful and harmonious with everybody around you. So you need to be able to identify these attachments and where you're having challenges to do that, you just reach out for help. Essentially, what you've got as part of this path that the Buddha shared is these eight steps that are assembled into three individual sections or categories. This is the Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Next week, I'm going to go through in detail and explain each one of these individually using the words of the Buddha, helping you to learn, reflect, and practice. And then you gradually build your practice up to practicing this closer and closer. You'll understand the wisdom section, which we started today, helping you to understand right view. You'll understand the moral conduct and the mental discipline. Now, everything the Buddha taught around moral conduct, these aren't rules, these aren't commandments. This isn't guilt, shame, or fear to get you to do anything particular. The Buddha was helping you to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear. So he's not gonna use guilt, shame, and fear in order to motivate you to follow some rules. He never taught about any rules. Instead, he attained this mental state where the mind is peaceful and joyful permanently for the rest of your life. And then he just shared the guidance to help people understand how to attain that same mental state. And part of the training 
is to understand the moral conduct. Because as long as you're putting harm out into the world through your speech, your actions, and your livelihood, that harm is going to come back to you. So you can see the words of the Buddha related to this, that it's guidance. It's not rules or guilt, shame, or fear, anything like that. And then you can see the mental discipline where he's teaching you how to train your mind to have this inner discipline and this control. Because when the mind is sad and angry and frustrated, even when it's you know having that conditional happiness, excitement, elation, you don't have discipline of the mind. The mind is like this wild animal running away from you. But when you're practicing the mental discipline, you can get this inner control of the mind. And now you can experience what it's like to live life with this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. So today we've been working on establishing right view. Wrong view would be to blame other people or blame the situation. And that's why you haven't been able to experience this liberation and freedom from these strong feelings, because as long as you blame other people or the situation, that's not the true problem. And that's why you haven't been able to get to a true solution. You can't train 8 billion people in the world to do things your way. That's utterly impossible. But you can train one mind to understand the natural laws of existence and through understanding those natural laws of existence, you can get to this liberation and freedom of strong feelings. Do you know who that one mind is that you need to train? The one mind that you have the ability to train? You don't have the ability to train everybody else. Each individual person needs to be able to train their own mind, but you do have the ability to train one mind. And if you can do that, which will be challenging enough, then you can experience this liberation. And it starts with right view, accepting responsibility for the feelings and emotions and things that you're experiencing. And by accepting that responsibility and seeing that it's craving desire attachment that's causing it, that is powerful because now you know what the real problem is and now you can start working on the solution and eliminating it. And that's what it means to establish right view is to deeply understand that your mind is causing all these feelings itself and now work towards the goal of dialing in this eightfold path closer and closer to train the mind to no longer experience that shaking up, that unsteadiness, that uncalmness. And you can get to this liberation of the mind. So this is everything that I had to share with you guys on the Four Noble Truths and Establishing Right View for today. If you guys have any questions, I'd be pleased to answer any questions that you have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, Teacher David. Let's go to Tonka. We have one more question from James. He's saying minimalistic lifestyle and monastic life are easy ways to be enlightened, right? Which is better way? I wouldn't say that the monastic life is an easy way to get to enlightenment. There really is nothing that's easy. This path isn't easy, but it's not difficult either. Oftentimes people make it more difficult because we're using words like suffering when the Buddha really described these three feelings or we're misunderstanding some of the teachings of the Buddha. So it's not easy, but it's not difficult either, but it does take dedication, determination, and diligence. The ordained path is more conducive to getting to enlightenment, but it's not guaranteed. So in the ordained lifestyle, it's like being in the womb of a woman. In the womb of a woman, this fetus has ideal conditions to be able to grow and develop, be nurtured, and grow into a human being. So in the womb of a woman, everything is ideal for this to occur. The ordained path, you can think of it as the same way, that an ordained practitioner 
isn't going to work to a nine to five. They're not having to purchase a home. They're not having to purchase clothing, purchase food and all these other things. Instead, all their time can be dedicated to learning, reflecting and practicing the teachings of the Buddha and getting to their own liberation. And as they're doing that, then they're able to then share the teachings with others. But even in the ordained path, there's different temples and different teachers who aren't necessarily understanding the teachings or aren't necessarily using the words of the Buddha in order to share their teachings. Oftentimes we think that every temple, every monk must know the words of the Buddha and that everybody must be learning with the words of the Buddha. But that's typically coming from the background of understanding the Bible, that it's just one book. Well, it's really 72 books within one book, but it's just one small book. But the teachings of the Buddha, he taught for 45 years. So there's 45 large volumes of books. You know, this is one of them right here. It's enormous. And these 45 volumes of books, it's actually quite expensive to be able to purchase them because of the printing costs involved. So the average person who is a Buddhist doesn't have all the books. The average temple doesn't even have the books. And even if they have them, they aren't necessarily studying them and then reflecting on them and practicing them. So oftentimes what you get in various communities is a lack of understanding of the words of the Buddha. I've visited over 200 temples in my life, this life, and I've only ever been to one temple that actually studies with the words of the Buddha. That's less than 1%. So while it is the way that the Buddha taught it, more conducive to an ordained practitioner to be able to get to enlightenment because they have 100% of their time devoted to getting to enlightenment. That's not oftentimes what ordained practitioners are doing. So they do have more discipline that is there for them. They're in a community of people who are working towards enlightenment, but they also have certain struggles and obstacles to overcome themselves. In the household lifestyle, we have obstacles and challenges as well. We need to have more inner discipline because we're not necessarily living in an environment where there's a lot of people who are necessarily on the same path as us. So we need to be able to have this inner discipline that we're not going to conform to what other people are doing. We need to manage and balance this life of going out to work and making money and taking care of our home and our clothing and our food. Perhaps if we have children or a life partner, we need to manage all these things. And we also need to find time to study, to meditate and do these other things. So in the household lifestyle, it's actually more conducive to getting to enlightenment than it was during the lifetime of the Buddha. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a lot of work just to sustain your life. You're like now we can go down to the store, to the restaurant, and we can get food like that. They weren't necessarily able to do that during the lifetime of the Buddha. We can walk into a kitchen or a bathroom and we can turn a knob and we can get water like that in most places in the world, where during the lifetime of the Buddha, they would take days sometimes to lug water from the well to their house. So they were so busy just to sustain their life and had so many tasks that they weren't always able to learn and practice to be able to get to enlightenment, where today we have a lot more time. In fact, we have so much time, we tend to fill it up with unbeneficial things like you know, lots and lots of entertainment or searching social media or parties or things like this. If you start stripping this stuff away and limiting that kind of thing, you'll see that you actually have a lot more time in your life than you realize. And you can practice this inner discipline where you can 
learn in classes like this by coming regularly to the classes. You can come to courses and retreats. You can read the book maybe 10, 15 minutes a day. You can be doing meditation and you can gradually build up your practice. So both situations in the ordained lifestyle and in the household lifestyle, there are certain obstacles and challenges where the way the Buddha taught the ordained path, if people practiced it the way that he taught it, it is more conducive to getting to enlightenment. But that's not to say that a household practitioner wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. And today, there's actually more opportunity for somebody to get to enlightenment in a household lifestyle than existed during the lifetime of the Buddha. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Let's go to Marcy. She has her hand raised. Thank you again. Um, Teacher David, when you were talking about the breathing mindful meditation, I tend to uh, do my sessions by following along with one of your one of our practices that we had. But I'm noticing now um, that I'm still as before where I could find peacefulness towards, you know, during it, I'm finding that I'm still almost to the point where you're already coming to the second chant that I'm still in my mind trying to, you know, let go of things and regain. Should I at this point extend my meditation practice and maybe veer away from following the videos at this point? Because I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm craving, if, if my mind is craving to meditate longer and that's something I need to let go too. So... Yeah, the guidance that I provide in these classes to help you get into meditation, that's needed for a period of time. But ultimately, you would like to get to the point where you're not needing my guidance to meditate, where you can just sit down or lie or stand or walk, do one of the four body positions, and you can just do meditation by yourself without the guidance that I'm providing. But when you're first getting started, it oftentimes helps to have the guidance of a teacher. So if you're meditating and it's only with my guidance that you're listening to my voice in the videos or podcasts or things like that, you would like to kind of wean the mind away from that where you're able to do it on your own. And then you can be in meditation for whatever amount of time that the mind needs rather than just the time that I'm meditating in class. Because oftentimes in class, I'm only doing meditation for like 15, 20 minutes, sometimes upwards of 30 minutes. But typically I'm doing shorter, particularly early in a group learning program like this, because I know that the students are new. So I'm usually doing shorter meditations. But if you were seeing me meditate on my own in my own practice, I'm doing that 30 minutes or more. And that's what you would like to build up to. So if the videos or podcasts are limiting you from being able to do that, you'd like to wean away from doing that so you can do it on your own time and based on your own choices and training the mind to be able to get into meditation on its own. And so with that being said, so I would sit with my meditation until my mind, it's almost like a release. Like I, like there would be a, like a release where the mind will say I'm full or I'm kind of like, I just said, I use the second chant as a timing kind of to say, okay, you've meditated, it's done. But do I just sit with the meditation until I actually just exhaust it? Is that a good way of I wouldn't go until exhaustion because that's, you know, kind of not in the middle, right? So if you're going to do the chanting, which I'm going to teach the new students on Wednesday, by the way, we're starting a four-part series on chanting, is that you start with the chants and ease the mind into meditation. That's all it's there for. There's nothing mystical or magical with it. You just ease the mind into meditation and then you just meditate. And wherever you feel like you're done, you just finish. 
And then if you would like to end with chanting, you end with chanting. And before your meditation, you can look to see what time it is. And then after your meditation, you can look to see what time it is. And this will give you an indication. Okay, I meditated for 10 minutes. So that means next time I'd like to do longer. Or I meditated for 20 minutes. So okay, next time let me do longer. Or maybe you meditated for 45 minutes. You're like, all right, well, that was fine. I meditated, you know, 30 minutes or more. That, That works fine. So you just get an indication. You like to check in on your timing about once a week where you just kind of observe how long you're meditating for and you just kind of get used to checking in every once in a while. I even do this now, many years later, I still about once a week will check in on my time to see how long I've been meditating because sometimes you're meditating and it seems like just five minutes that you've been meditating, but it's really been 45 minutes or an hour. And other times it feels like you've been meditating for 45 minutes or an hour and it was only five or 10 minutes. So you'd like to kind of check in on this every once in a while to kind of assess that you're in that ballpark of about 30 minutes or more. And with that said, since we're talking about timing, is that, you know, if you're on your way to work or something like this, and you've only got 20 minutes to meditate, in that situation, you'd probably like to set an alarm and just know that you're going to be finished in 20 minutes. But in situations where you don't need an alarm, maybe in the evenings or on the weekends, your days off, don't use an alarm. That would be best. Let's go to Joe. He has his hand raised. Hello. 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 In relation to the um, third noble truth, um, my parents are, you know, well, they are what they are. So I've had to make choices and like sort of let them go. Um, and so, you know, I always second, second guess myself. Am I making the right choice for my family, this, that, and the other? Um, but in particular, my father, he's a little, you know, I don't know. Um, but he used to call my partner and, you know, they would just, you know, to catch up, I guess, but she would always leave the conversation feeling bad um, because just of the way, you know, he communicates. Um, So, you know, and so I want to eliminate that from my life and I don't want to be cold, but I also want to make sure I've done my part, um, you know, before I, cut ties, which I already have, I guess, but I just want to make sure I'm not, you know, sort of in the right, but um, not, I guess, doing things out of some sort of craving I'm not aware of yet, or, um, you know, that sort of thing. And one more thing. um, So I have cut ties and I'm fine with that, you know, Um, but you know, it's like he recently broke his arm. It's like, well, now I feel bad. You know, I realize that's, you know, sort of his problem, but I just, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to be a, sort of a bad person or, you know, um, or not. I don't know. <laughs> Reaching out or, you know, uh, taking care of, you know, or calling him up about that or, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I personally don't see a reason to, but. Um, like I said, I just want to make sure, you know, I've sort of done what I'm supposed to do, um, in that regard. So I can just sort of just let that go. Okay. So that's, uh, I'm sorry. Are you, are you still have more? No, I, I think I'm for now. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about a couple of things here. So if somebody's having a phone call and they get off the phone and they feel bad, what's caused that feeling of feeling bad? 
Well, that's on them, I imagine, on the person that feels bad. Okay. So if your partner is getting off the phone and they feel bad about the conversation, then what is it that's causing that feeling, that frustration or irritation or whatever it is that's in the mind? Uh, well, it might be, you know, something my father would say to them that is, you know, negative. Uh, you know, usually it's something like that. Um, okay. So I'm going to redisplay something that we talked about today. What is it that is making the mind feel discontent feelings? Look at the second noble truth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, if, craving. right, right. So, if the mind is experiencing discontent feelings, it's being caused by craving, desire, attachment. It's not dad that's causing life partner to feel any particular way. It's life partner's mind having a craving, a longing, a yearning for things to be a certain way. And when things aren't that way, then that mind of life partner is experiencing discontentedness, right? So that's the first part. Any discontentedness that is being caused, it's being caused by one's own mind, one's own craving, desire, attachment, longing, yearning, wanting things to be a certain way. Do you understand that part? Yes. Okay, so then this next part is, is we don't know, I don't know what dad's talking about or what dad is saying. So as long as we understand that the discontentedness in life partner's mind is being caused by life partner, now we look at, okay, dad is doing something particular. Like, let's just say he's, I don't think he's doing this, but let's just take it to the extreme. Let's just say he's, what's that? You can take it to the extreme because you're probably dead on. <laughs> okay. So let's just say the extreme is like, just say he's shouting profanities and degrading your life partner, diminishing her, you know, talking all kinds of unwise things to her. Now, any discontentedness that life partner's experiencing, she is causing that herself. And you've shared with me about your wife and your children. So I know that it's your wife. So any discontent feelings that she's experiencing, she's causing it herself because of her cravings, desires, attachments. But then you look at, is it wise to continue to put the mind in the situation where someone's being degrading and disparaging or something like this, right? Exactly. If, if you chose to move this person out of your life or cut ties, as you say, it's not gonna solve the problem of the discontentedness in your wife's mind. That's not gonna solve the problem. But still, it might be wise to choose to step away from this relationship because this person is choosing to be degrading and diminishing and disparaging. And you can choose to step away from a relationship while understanding your own discontent feelings are being caused by your own mind. And you can maintain this loving kindness and this compassion for dad and understand like, okay, he's challenged. He obviously isn't understanding right view, right intention, right speech, right action, all these other teachings. It's unfortunate that he doesn't have this wisdom. We're gonna perhaps step away and maintain our loving kindness, which is a genuine interest in seeing them be well. We're going to maintain our compassion, which is concern for his misfortune, but we're just going to choose to go away and kind of give this relationship a pause. And then at some point in the future, you're always open to a relationship together, but you understand that in order to have a healthy relationship, there needs to be this 
baseline need of politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect. Without that baseline need in a relationship, you're not going to be able to get to a healthy relationship. So there needs to be the politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect. All the while, life partner, wife, and you, you're working on your own mind to eliminate cravings, desires, attachments, expecting dad to be a certain way, but at the same time, choosing to step away where you can kind of love from afar. And this is something that we're going to talk about in chapter 15 when I teach true love, love without attachment, is understanding how to love somebody without attachment. Because letting go of an attachment doesn't mean you end the relationship. That's not what it means to practice non-attachment. It means training the mind to not want or expect or crave or yearn or long for this being to be a certain way. As long as there's expectations or wants in the mind, there's this longing yearning for dad to be a certain way. When there's those expectations in the mind, dad's not going to meet those. Dad's going to be short of those. So that means as soon as you have expectations or cravings or wants or longing yearning for dad to be a certain way, you're setting your mind up for discontentedness because he's not going to be able to meet that expectation. So the problem isn't that dad is not meeting your expectations. The problem is the expectations themselves the cravings, desires, attachments. That's the problem. That's the cause of the problem. So the mind needs to eliminate the cause, which is the craving, desire, attachment. That's what's going to help wife and you get to peacefulness and joy and contentedness, not expecting dad to be a certain way. Dad has work to do too, but he may or may not be willing to do that work. And that's not your responsibility to make sure he does the work. He has to do it himself. The Buddha does teach that for our parents, we can try to settle and encourage and establish them in understanding things like the Four Noble Truths. But sometimes they're just not open to it. And after two or three attempts of trying to help them see the truth, you might need to just let go mentally. You don't need to eliminate the relationship necessarily because that's not going to solve the problem. The problem of the discontentedness in your mind or your wife's mind that's being caused by craving, desire, attachment. That's what you need to solve. The thing with dad, he needs to be able to solve that himself. And perhaps stepping away for a period of time can be helpful to accomplish that while maintaining the loving kindness and compassion. So choosing to put a relationship on hold, you're not a bad person. I don't think about you know bad people or good people. It's just a choice that you're making at this point in time, perhaps, that in order for you and your wife to gain some stability of mind and feel comfortable with what it is that you're facing in terms of craving, desires, attachments, it might make sense to step away from the relationship for a period of time. Okay. But you'll have to decide yeah. that and she'll have to decide that for herself because I wouldn't ever tell you what to do or what not to do. But if you are going to step away from the relationship, it's important that you still work on your own cravings, desires, attachments. That's what's going to solve the problem. And if you're going to step away from the relationship, it's important to maintain the loving kindness and compassion. If you're going to continue to have contact, you're still going to need to eliminate your craving, desire, attachment. You're still going to need to have loving kindness and compassion. But oftentimes it's much harder for you to eliminate that attachment while the relationship is ongoing. So that's why oftentimes it helps to step away from a relationship for a period of time and then be open to coming back together and then seeing that how it's working. And then maybe you need to step away again, you know, and this coming and going back and forth 
you can get to some stability in the relationship. But until dad understands, he's going to continue to perhaps be degrading or disparaging. I don't know what it is. We're just using that extreme example. But he's going to continue to do those things. As long as you have expectations of him, wanting him to be a certain way, you'll be discontent because he'll never meet your expectations. The expectations are the problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah, because my wife is well, Bosnian and in their culture, or at least in her family, you know, elders are, you know, elders and you don't, you don't ignore, you don't, you know, you do what, you know. Um, so my feeling is that she would never, you know, not answer if he called or, you know, mm-hmm. someone, some elder called. That's just the way it is. So in order for me to sort of prevent, you know, this whole ripple effect in the family blocked, you know, his calls. So, you know, basically I don't have to deal with it. (laughs) Um, So that's where I'm at. Yeah. And these relationships where you've chosen to perhaps step away, I don't necessarily suggest for like a family member to block unless it's like really overbearing and their craving is just coming at you like, you know, without any limits. But if it's possible where they're calling you, you can just choose not to answer the phone, you know, let it go to voicemail. And if they're used to calling every day or every week or something like that, you can just choose to put some more and more space. You don't need to go to the person and say, you know, I can no longer be in a relationship with you because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this. This is what we typically do in the unenlightened state is we feel like we need to justify why we're stepping away from the relationship. When in reality, we don't need to explain that to anybody. We can just know that we're working on our own craving, desire, attachments, and we need to step away from the relationship. And that's what's wise for your own mind. And you can do that by just choosing not to message back right away, put some space more and more between your text messages, your phone calls and things like this. And this helps their mind to gradually move on. And it helps your mind to kind of gradually move on. And then at some point in the future, when your mind's in a better place, their mind's in a better place, perhaps there can be a better ability to talk and have discussions. I had to do this with my mom many times. We would come together, either her and or I would be bitter and harsh and aggressive. I would choose to step away for a number of months or sometimes it ended up being years. And then we would come back together and then for like two or three months, everything would be fine. And then something would happen and I would just choose to go away. And then, you know, she'd be working on whatever she's working on. I'm working on whatever I'm working on. And then we would come back together and slowly but surely we got to the point where we could have every conversation could be loving and kind and friendly and polite and respectful. But it took me doing work and her doing work in order to do that individually because we needed to work on our own mind. But when we just go to somebody, we say, I can't be your friend anymore for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. You're just naming cravings, desires, attachments. You're just naming expectations of what you're expecting of this person. When this person is their own being and they need to make their own decisions. And while you might disagree with their decisions, because of impermanence, you're not going to always agree with everybody's decisions around you. You can get rid of your expectations while knowing that a relationship needs to have politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect. But as soon as you expect this, from somebody 
that's when the mind sets itself up for discontentedness. So you can just make a wise decision and know that in relationships where there is politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect, you've got the foundation that you need to build a healthy relationship. And where those things don't exist, you can just choose to kind of create a bit of distance. And then perhaps that person will become more polite, kind, friendly, respectful, but they have to choose to do that on their own. Oh, maybe I'll unblock her or him from my uh, wife's phone and let her kind of handle it. Perhaps. (laughs) With this advice, of course. With this Yeah, you'll have to decide for yourself. Each one of these situations are different. And as you need help, you're welcome to reach out and ask for more help. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I think that leads right into um, Tonka. She has a question on YouTube, it looks like. Thank you, Casey. Yes, we have one more question. It is from Etanoli. I believe in impermanence, but my partner is Catholic and doesn't understand it. She feels sad and angry when I said uh, when I said love is not permanent, and she made me feel bad. How would you deal with this? Okay, so a couple of things for you to understand first, based on your question, is first, you should never believe the universal truth of impermanence. Don't believe it. Instead, learn it, reflect on it to independently verify it, see that it's true, and then practice it so that you have the wisdom, that you know without a shadow of a doubt that the universal truth of impermanence is indeed true. Not as a belief, but it's true. The next thing is, is that love unconditional love is actually permanent. The unfortunate thing is that the unenlightened mind misunderstands love. We think that love is actually what is craving desire attachment. Craving desire attachment is masquerading as love. And you'll understand this more when you read chapter 15 in volume one and we have that class. But let me explain it to you a little bit now. What we think is love in the unenlightened state is actually craving desire attachment masquerading as love. We say, I love you, therefore I want you to be with me because you make me happy. I love you, I have fallen in love with you. Essentially what we're saying is, you're meeting my expectations. You're doing everything that I want. You're causing me to have these pleasant feelings because I have this craving desire attachment. You're meeting my conditions. So now I've said I've fallen in love with you. But then at some point in the relationship, this person no longer is meeting your expectations. Perhaps your expectations have been growing and growing and growing. And now we say in the unenlightened state, I don't love you anymore. I've fallen out of love with you. Our relationship needs to end. Well, that part of it wasn't actually the love. That was the craving, desire, attachment. That was the expectations. The mind has fallen into craving and it's fallen out of craving. The unenlightened mind is saying, I love you, therefore I want you to be with me because you make me happy. That's not actually the love. That's craving, desire, attachment. It's selfishness. You make me happy. I want you to be with me. What true love is, true love is, I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be well. I just love you as you are. I'm not trying to change you. I don't have expectations. I'm not trying to get you to make me happy. I'm already whole. I'm already complete. I'm already feel love. You didn't have to do anything to earn my love. So therefore, there's nothing you can do for me to fall out of love with you. I just love you because I would like to see you be well. 
This is what true love is in a nutshell. As long as craving, desire, attachment is masquerading as love, we will say that we fall in love with people and we've fallen out of love with people. But in reality, this person is meeting your conditions. They're meeting your expectations. So now I will tell you that I love you. And then when you're no longer meeting my expectations, I'm going to tell you I don't love you anymore. But this isn't the actual love. The love is I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be well. And I'm here to support you and encourage you along your life journey and realize that I'm not going to agree with all your decisions. And that's okay because of the universal truth of impermanence. I'm not going to agree with all your decisions, but I can love you. And I don't need to agree with every one of your decisions. And you don't need to agree with every one of my decisions. And I can still maintain my love for you because my love is I'm just interested in seeing you be well. That's what true love is. So in a situation where you're talking to your wife who doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence and is not interested in understanding it, you can share with her that, yes, true love, as you understand and know what true love is, true love is actually permanent because it's unconditioned. There's no condition that's causing you to love. So therefore, you can maintain your love permanently. This is where somebody can have a murderer murder their child and they can still have love for the person. You might disagree with their decisions that you murdered my child. I disagree with what you did, but I can still love you as a person because I would like to see you be well. You're not necessarily going to go to dinner with this person. You're not going to necessarily buy them Christmas gifts or necessarily, but you can have this love where you would like to see this person be well, but you disagree with their decisions. This is true love. You didn't earn my love, so therefore there's nothing you can do for me to fall out of love with you. So you can have this conversation again with your wife and helping her understand that true love is actually permanent. But then if she would like to understand the universal truth of impermanence, you might be able to explain it to her. or You might decide to show her this video or listen to a podcast that I share or help her see the book if she's interested in learning. Because the teachings of Jesus Christ and the Buddha, there are some similarities to them. They're not 100% the same, of course, because of impermanence. And the goal of Gautama Buddha and the goal of Jesus Christ are very different. Gautama Buddha was sharing teachings to help you liberate the mind and get to enlightenment. And Jesus Christ was trying to convince people that there's only one God. So he needed to perform a lot of miracles to convince people who he was. And then he was moving humanity's mind towards this understanding of one God. Because prior to that, the vast majority of the world thought that there was multiple gods. So Jesus's objectives were very different than the Buddha's objectives. And Jesus also taught certain things about walking from the darkness to the light. He talked about wisdom. He even talked about training the mind. He even talked about meditation. There's over 20 different references to meditation in the Bible. Some people don't realize this. He even taught about the cycle of rebirth where he talked about, I'll, be, I'll come again, this continuous rebirth. So there are some similarities there. And you can get to a place of understanding 
in harmonious relationship and peaceful relationship with your wife, even if she's choosing to practice Christian teachings, because some Christians will learn the teachings of the Buddha and help them to understand Christian teachings more closely. And then some people who are learning the teachings of the Buddha will understand Christian teachings as well. And we don't have to label ourselves as being different and fight over who's wrong or who's right, even though you didn't mention that that's what's occurring. But sometimes that's what occurs in the world is we have these labels. We have this identity, this personal existence view. I am Hindu. I am Buddhist. I am Christian. I am Muslim. Now let's fight over who's right and who's wrong. Well, that doesn't lead to peacefulness and joy. The way that I look at it is all these teachers shared something that was beneficial for humanity. And if we can look at the commonalities and the similarities amongst all of these teachers, then we can get to this peacefulness and this harmonious relationship where we can see the connections and similarities between all these teachings rather than focusing on the differences. And we may talk about the differences, but not necessarily in a disparaging or degrading way, but understanding each set of these teachings these Hindu teachings, Buddhist teachings, Christian teachings, Muslim teachings, and others have all contributed something to society. And for me, the Buddha is teaching very clear, very direct, very concise, explaining to you in a way that you can independently verify his teachings without belief so that you can then see the results of the condition of the mind improving. So you might be able to help your wife see some of these teachings and understand some of these, but it would need to be her interest to learn them. If you have a craving, desire, attachment to push them on her, she's going to be resistant to them. But if she's making the choice to learn them and bring them into her life, then this can be helpful for her. So you'll just need to be patient. She may or may not ever decide to learn these teachings, but if you eliminate any craving for her to learn them, then you can experience the peacefulness. But as long as you have craving for her to learn them and she's not learning them, then you're going to be discontent about that. Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I do have one more question. Um, earlier, we were talking about mindfulness and awareness of mind. Um, there has been a struggle with um, maintaining awareness of mind and mindfulness with lack of sleep. Um, it's been, we, we spoke earlier, it's been an exhausting week with um, my oldest having surgery, um, one having trouble in school, him, my oldest needing significantly more help with, with the surgery and just um, feeling exhausted, not finding the middle way. How would one practice more um, mindfulness and awareness of mind when um, not being in the middle very well um, due to life's needs around them? Yeah, this is the challenge is that when there's so much going on around us that if our life is that way, then it is challenging to get sleep and have mindfulness and these kind of things. So the more that you're training your mind and also helping your children to do more and more wonderful things in the world, your life will become more calm and you'll be able to get the sleep that you need. But, you know, protecting your sleep is important. So having, you know, good sleep, but also being understanding of the universal truth of impermanence that you're not always going to get the amount of sleep that the mind wants. So 
if you have six hours of sleep, but you really wanted eight or 10, then the mind's going to be discontent in that situation. So if you wake up and you've only had six hours and you're still feeling tired and droggy, I would say take it very slow on those days because you know your mind isn't necessarily in the best condition and you haven't had as much sleep as you would have liked to have had and understand that this is impermanent that whatever situation you're going through now with your children this is impermanent you can get this to be more calm and more stable and you can get to sleep in the future night and you can get the sleep that you need but in the situations where you're not getting sleep just take things slow take things steady maybe think through your decisions a bit more at work go a little bit slower as you're driving down the street, go a little bit slower. Oftentimes when our mind doesn't have as much sleep, we try to speed up and we feel like we're behind the curve and we try to make a whole bunch of rapid decisions and we think that's going to solve the problem because the mind swings back and forth. When the mind's feeling droggy or complacent or lethargic, we think that, okay, we got to speed that up and we swing all the way over here to craving, desire, attachment, where we're longing and yearning and making a bunch of rapid decisions. But you're not interested in the mind swinging all the way over there. You're just interested in bringing it to the middle a bit where you can just be a little bit more calm, a little bit more consistent, a little bit more steady. And that might mean that you slow things down. Any major decisions that you need to make that you don't have to make right now, you can postpone those to another time when you've had more sleep and things are more calm in your life. If there's little intermediate decisions like what are we going to eat for dinner? You know, what are we, you know, those kind of things. What am I going to wear today? You know, those kind of little things you can just handle. But if there's any big major decisions, try to push those back that you don't need to make those when you're not fully rested and have your mind in a condition that you would like to have in order to make wise decisions. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. And then um, one more question. I find in these times that um, I practice meditation not when I'm not alone, when um, because I can't be alone. Um, so, for example, if um, well, last night back in the hospital with my son, I was just meditating, um, and it comes off very uncaring and rude, um, or that there's something wrong. Um, is it wrong to do that? Is it, um, is that an unloving way to practice? I see it as just the opposite, that the very best thing you could do in a situation where you're sitting in a hospital with your son and you're going to need to be helping him and consulting him and supporting him to make decisions with doctors and things like this, the best thing you can do is make sure that your mind is stable and steady and prepared. And if you're doing some meditation in the hospital room in order to prepare your mind for these conversations that you're going to have with the medical professionals, that's the most loving and kind thing that you can do. The person in the room, I think your son in this case, might have perceived it as you being uncaring. But just remember that that's their perception. That's not true reality. If you know true reality that you need to get your mind into a peaceful place where you can think through the decisions that are about to be made and you meditating and doing some meditation is going to help you to accomplish that, then you know that that's the most loving and kind thing. And you might not be able to explain that to your son right there in that situation. So you do what you know is best and then later on at some point, if you need to explain it to him, then you can explain it to him. Or if you're able to explain it to him right then and there, you can, but that's up to you. But 
the true reality of the matter is that you would like your mind to be in the best place possible because you know that that's going to promote the best decision making and if uh, some meditation is going to help you to do that then you know you know that that's the most loving and kind thing that you could do even though others might not perceive it that way because as you're practicing these teachings remember that lotus flower that's in the dirty murky water this dirty murky water of the world they're not necessarily going to understand that this lotus flower is growing and needs to get above this murky water and bloom. So other people are going to be looking at you and thinking horrible things, and or not necessarily your son, but other people in the world, like what Marcy was sharing. People are going to look at you and think that you're uncaring or you're this or you're that, and they're judging you based on their own perceptions. But just because people are judging you that way and communicating their judgment and their perceptions to you, that doesn't doesn't make it true you know people say bad things about me sometimes that doesn't make it true people gossip and slander me at different times it doesn't make it true so if you know the true reality that you're working to make wise decisions for your son then you do what you need to do and then if you have the ability to explain it to them afterwards then go for it or if you can do it in the moment go for it while we're talking about it this is one of the challenges with the household life is that as a single mom of three children yeah you're going to find it challenging to come to classes on certain days you're going to find it challenging to meditate certain times but the beauty is you have some flexibility in your life because you're self-employed and there you can kind of work in some meditation that maybe somebody else might not be able to so what you do is you try to create as much space as you can for learning and for reflecting and practicing these teachings all the while knowing that as a single mom with three children it's going to be challenging but you just gradually work towards creating more and more space for you to meditate so if meditating in a hospital room is what you've got available to you go for it you know i've meditated at bus stops before when i was waiting for a bus or a train or something like this or if i was on an airplane flying somewhere i'd be meditating so if you can get it Go for it. That's why that two to three meditations for 30 minutes or more is the ideal what you would like to build up to. But if you can get five minutes here, 10 minutes there, 15 minutes there, go for it. It's kind of like if you're thirsty and you're a dry sponge and you just came upon this trough of water, you're going to sit there and scoop water as much as you can. Even though maybe you normally would scoop water five hours from now, hey, you've got this water in front of you. Start scooping some water and filling up your bucket. So take what you can get in those situations. Okay, thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. It appears that is all the questions that we have at this time. Okay, well, I would like to thank all of you for joining for today's class. I know that we went a little bit over our normal scheduled time, but we do this from time to time, and then there'll be other times where we'll actually be finishing class uh, quite a bit earlier than normal so it'll all balance out as we go through our program but this is your practice right it's your dedication your determination in fact just listening to me talk it's helping to train your mind to have mindfulness and concentration and building patience and understanding impermanence right that not every class is going to be exactly an hour hour and a half two hours that each class is going to be a little bit different length of time so this is the universal truth of impermanence itself so today you've 
been learning and practicing, and I'd like to thank you for your dedication to deciding that today is a day that you would like to learn the teachings of the Buddha, because this helps you, those close to you, and all of humanity as you're training your mind more and more to learn and practice these teachings. Next week on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter five. If you'd like to read this prior to class and or after, there's a lot of detail there that I'll be able to go through a good amount of that detail in class next week on the Eightfold Path. This is the path for all humans to enlightenment. But there's details in this chapter that I won't actually be able to cover in class. So the combination between reading and coming to class, you'll glean the most benefit out of what it is that there is to learn there. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to start the four-part series on Buddhist chanting. So if you'd like to learn Buddhist chanting and why somebody might be interested in doing this, what are the benefits, what are the qualities of mind that it cultivates and why somebody would actually do chanting. And I'm even going to talk about the history of how chanting came to be and why it's actually used today. So I'm going to start that this Wednesday. And remember, if you can't make the Wednesday class, it's recorded. So you can watch it on Facebook or YouTube, or you can listen to it on the podcast. So thank you all for joining for the class. And I'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.